When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams from the New York Post. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you can read me and you'd better. And every Sunday, 1 o'clock, I'm on WABC. Now, tomorrow, Monday, is Martin Luther King Day. It is almost unbelievable for me to say, or for you to believe, but I can prove it, I knew him well, I have multiple experiences and photographs with him. I well knew the Reverend Martin Luther King. Personally, I spent considerable time with him and his wife, Coretta. It was my husband, who's gone now, the comedian Joey Adams, who was president of our theatrical union, AGVA, AGVA, which stands for American Guild of Variety Artists, and it is he, Joey Adams, who led the famous Dr. Martin Luther King March to Birmingham, Alabama. How do I know? Because the Reverend Martin Luther King asked Joey to do it. I was a kid. I was along. I know all about it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it's like to have known Martin Luther King. In 1960, my husband, Joey Adams, then president of the American Guild of Variety Artists, led the troop to Birmingham, Alabama, a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. march. The Supremes were there, Ray Charles, Johnny Mathis, Joe Lewis, Nina Simone, James Baldwin, and me. We were 76 of us aboard a lead chartered plane. The plan was to perform there until the town discovered the group was interracial. We were then instantly denied access to our long-arranged venue, which was an outdoor football field, and then became the stage. The crowd was tremendous. There were some 18,000 people trying to surge onto it. The hastily knocked-together platform then collapsed. I know I was on it. Power was lost. We were in the dark. This is the famous march you have read about. Everybody tried to stay calm. The Reverend... Martin Luther King asked Billy Taylor to play his original 60s protest song, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. Rob Reiner used it to open his Whoopi Goldberg, James Woods, Alec Baldwin movie, Ghosts of Mississippi. The event met volleys of silence from the mayor. We were scared. I was scared. There were police, political figures, and local press. 
all hotels and restaurants were restricted. They would not feed or house any of us. Lodging was handled. The planes did not leave. They stayed on the ground, lest they had to take us away quickly. Food was handled. NYC delis, our delicatessens from this city, New York, loaded onto these planes crates of meat and drink. This was the first ever integrated show in that city's history. It was the trigger that got the Martin Luther King juggernaut rolling. Reverend King said, Joey played a key role. I have photographs to prove it. Months earlier, he had come to Joey to help raise money for his march on the Capitol. This was the preamble to the famous historic Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., thrilling the world with his Washington, D.C. speech, I Have a Dream. I can tell you that Dorothy Parker left the bulk of her estate to the Reverend King. I can tell you that Josephine Baker's warehouse was left to Martin Luther King. I can tell you that Sammy Davis Jr. wept when the Reverend died, and that James Earl Ray did a jailhouse interview. I know that he and Coretta supported the Integrated Children's Theater Worship workshop in the 1960s, and it was run, you ready, by Julia Roberts' parents. Listen, I have the history of this. I was there day by day. There was also Cronkite there, Anthony Quinn, John Lindsay, Milton Berle, Imelda Marcos. There are stories about it that I have written, that I have lived through. There were people who said that they empathized with Martin Luther King by reminding him of his triumphs. That was Coretta King. Coretta King, whom I asked, that was his wife, I asked, how do you assuage the reverend when things are difficult, when he's tense? And she said she empathizes with Martin by reminding him, him of his triumphs. She goes down to an airplane with him because sometimes it's the only time she has to talk to him. She puts candy in his pocket, so during the day he will have something sweet. His birthday will be separated January 20th, in the old days, back originally by Ashford and Simpson, Bill Cosby, Billy Joel, Lionel Richie, Shirley MacLaine, George Bush. It was the way we began all of it. His subjects were always stress. He spoke about the difficulties. He spoke to Michael Caine, Anthony Quinn, Walter Cronkite, John Lindsay, Milton Berle. I would write about 
all of these things and leading the trip to Birmingham, Alabama. It was the Martin Luther King March. I remembered him. I remembered him in my house. I remembered feeding him. I remembered what it was like when he was tense. And now we have Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I am very happy to say I was part of it. Monday is Martin Luther King Day. It's almost unbelievable for me to say how I knew him well. I have multiple experiences and photographs. I well knew the Reverend Martin Luther King. I spent considerable time with him and his wife, who told me how little time she actually had with him. He was always on a plane. He was always making a march. He was always writing a speech. He was always with people in Washington. She said she practically had no time with him at all. So did I know Martin Luther King? Yes, I knew him. And I know that today we are celebrating him. We are honoring him. I am very grateful that when I was a little young kid, married to a comedian who was the president of AGVA, AGVA, the American Guild of Variety Artists, and to whom Martin Luther King came to probably help him to raise money, to raise celebrities for his march. I am grateful to know that in this day, I can say that I was there when it began. And now, I will go on with our broadcast, and I will be back in a moment. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Tony Marks, Anthony Marks. He is president of our New York Public Library. I know him. And I tell you right now, the guy is better looking than those two-faced, stone-faced lions, patience and fortitude. They're squatting outside our 42nd and 5th famous public library, and Tony Marks is on the phone with me. First, tell everybody who you are, where did you come from, how did you get this job? Oh, Cindy, it's great to talk to you. And uh, patience and fortitude, those lions out front, they've been there for over a century, welcoming every New Yorker, every visitor. I think they're the iconic image of libraries around the world. And it's an honor for me to be working here. I grew up, you know, not fancy in the Inwood section of Manhattan, just past Washington Heights, went to public school. My dad didn't go to college. You know, I got lucky. I got a great education. Um, One thing led to another. I ended up uh, working and living in South Africa, which was at the time of a near civil war. It was life changing and taught me the power of education under the worst of circumstances. And I brought that back with me as a professor at Columbia and then was a 
president of Amherst College in Massachusetts, where we really focused on getting more low income and, and kids of color who are, you know, we're being overlooked and are incredibly talented to add to the mix uh, because we all benefit from a greater mix of views and, and ideas. And that's what the library is committed to. So when the library said, come and help us out, um, we need to figure out the course of the biggest, most used library on the planet for the 21st century. We need to make that work for. Okay. Did you know that patience and fortitude, Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president in 1911, he wanted instead of lions, he wanted bisons. Bison. He wanted something American. But That's right. Yeah. The lions have stood for knowledge and for power since Rome and Greece. And, you know, so we're delighted that uh, that the founders of the library stuck with our lions. And we love patience and fortitude. Listen, you showed me when I was there things that made my spine crawl. They were so fabulous. Are they still there? You showed me Christopher Columbus's letter to the Absolutely. king about America. Tell us about that. Is it still there? Absolutely. The Polanski exhibit of our treasures is now a permanent exhibit. You walk in the main doors on Fifth Avenue and 41st Street. You know, nobody should be scared to come into this building, though it looks pretty intimidating. I was intimidated as a kid. But now you walk in and the first thing you'll see, there are free tickets. You can sign up in advance, is the treasures exhibit. Everything from the our only copy of the letter from Christopher Columbus. I mean, think about that, about the new world, literally the first such letter. We've got the original Bill of Rights. We've got the Declaration of Independence in Jefferson's hand. We've got uh, a, you know, Malcolm X's briefcase. We've got Beethoven's manuscript. All these treasures that we've had for over 100 years, now the public gets to see them. And we hope we'll be inspired then to use the library and find out more. And come Okay, to okay. If you've, got, if you've got, which you have, Columbus's letter to the king, where yep. he was telling them, the king, hey, listen, I think I found something, which I, was the United States. How do you how do you keep it, Tony? How? I mean, what do you put, wax paper around it? How do you keep the damn thing you okay? Know, we've, got, we've got one of the greatest collections of treasures in the world, uh, and we have an amazing staff. I am not an expert at this, Cindy. Um, you know, I'm lucky to get through the day. Um, I am not the person we should rely on for... Preservation, we've got the best preservationists. They make sure that everything is taken care of because it's our responsibility not only to provide access to it, but to preserve it for the future. Because as you say, the spine-tingling effect of being in the presence of the original is something that online just can't match. So people have to touch it. I mean, they don't touch it, but it's with gloves. Is that it? We, we uh, you know, when we need to, we use gloves. We use, we, we, we bought the fanciest cases possible so that things would be safe. In the case of the Bill of Rights, it's got its own respiration system so that it keeps at, at particular humidity. These are national treasures, global treasures. We have to keep them safe, but we also need to show them to the public and invite the public in. But tell me, I'm, I'm limited in my mentality. How do you know it's an original Bill of Rights? So we know that uh, there were 14 copies drawn up by, on Washington, General Washington, then President Washington's command. 
Each of the states got one. The, the, the federal government kept one. We know that uh, we're not an original state, but we can compare our copy to the other existing copies of the Bill of Rights. We know it's one of the originals. No one disputes that. We've made an arrangement with Pennsylvania where it gets to go visit Pennsylvania um, for like 20 or 25 percent of the time over a course of years so that there's no, we're not wasting money arguing about who owns it. Instead, we're spending our effort and our resources making sure the public can see it and be inspired by it. How big is this annex? I mean, when you built it, how, how did you, what was it before? It was a department store, wasn't it? Well, so no, the Treasures is in the main building, in, a, in the main, the Gottesman Hall, right off the Fifth Avenue entrance. At one point, things were so bad at the library with budget cuts back in the 70s and 80s that this amazing space was used as the HR department. It had cubicles oh, in it. Oh, my God. Now it has our treasures in it, which it should. Across the street is the Nearcos Foundation Library. It used to be the Mid-Manhattan. It's our biggest branch library. Cindy, it was a dump for decades. We spent $200 million on it, so it's now a equal partner to this palace with the lions in front so people can go back and forth. Kids can start on the ground floor there in a kids and teen center with the best technology around. We're going to build... The Teen and, and Kids Center is so successful, the mayor and Google and Best Buy, we're working together. We're going to build 20 more of these in the poorest neighborhoods to get the teens who you know we've lost to the computer, to FaceTime, to whatever, use the technology of music studios, gaming, get them in, and then teach them. You know, we're the biggest... Uh, education for free centers in the city. The okay, most- but you're not going to share these treasures and no, put no. them in the Bronx or we're downtown Brooklyn. Treasures, but we're going to get replicas of the treasures oh. out. We're going to oh. invite students oh. in, want every high school student to come visit treasures, and then we're going to have lesson plans based on the treasures for teachers to use. Listen, what do you read? You no, yourself, no. when you're home. I read a lot of emails. And a lot of memos. I I, I was just on vacation. I read a, I like historical novels. So I read a book called The Dream of Scipio by Ian Pears. Uh, Before that, I read uh, Leo Africanus. Um, I also get weird. I read a sci-fi book recently that has, it's really chilled me. It's about what happens with climate change going forward called The Ministry for the Future. I mean, there's so much to read. Luckily, We've got 50 million books here at the biggest, li- most used library, and we want everyone to use them. So nobody has two more cents for an overdue library book anymore? We don't charge fines. for We stopped the fines for overdue books. Pretty simple reason. It was supposed to help get people to bring books back, but people bring books back anyway. They love and respect the library. All it was doing was keeping the poor kids and families from using the library because they were scared of the fines. And that's the opposite of what we want to do. The folks who are not reading as much, we want them to be reading more. The folks who can't afford books or even you know don't have online access, that's what we're here for, as well as the highest end research and scholarship. So you decided that the Patience and Fortitude, our big 42nd Street library, shouldn't have anything else put in it it should have an annex and you went through a department store to get this tell me yeah yeah so
so the the main building's been here for I think it's 110 years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it used to have the circulating library down on the ground floor. That we outgrew that about I think 50 years ago, maybe 60. We bought at that time Constables, which was a great old department store, yeah, which yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember yeah. like best, uh, like best. Yeah. Um, and that's been our central branch library for these decades, but we never invested in it. It was sort of a dump. We let it be that way. It did not put our best foot forward as a central branch library. So we closed it before the pandemic. We spent $200 million thanks to the city and the Nearcos Foundation and other donors. And it's now unbelievable. It's got a kids and teens floor. It's got on the seventh floor, it's got a program space for 350 people, a cafe, and the only free public roof terrace in Manhattan. It's gorgeous. We want everyone to come and use every part of our library. Okay. When I was there, when you took me around, I remember, I didn't I see the Star Spangled Banner's first edition music? Didn't Wasn't that there? We, so we also, in the Treasures exhibit, uh, in the Polanski exhibit for Treasures, we've got stuff from the Library for Performing Arts, which is part of our system. It's at Lincoln Center. It's the greatest collection of music, theater, and dance. Amazing stuff, including historic things like the original Star Spangled Banner, and that gets cycled into our Treasures exhibit Similarly with the Schomburg, which is the greatest collection of African-American material up in Harlem, also part of our treasures exhibit, because these are crown jewels of the New York Public Library and of the city. I just don't under. Well, I know I know you have a team that does this, but could you explain to somebody as limited as myself? How do you keep it? How do you keep it air conditioned, air controlled? You don't let people's sticky fingers touch it. How does it work if a kid comes to look at something like this? Well, in the tre- the treasures are all uh, in the fanciest cases we could find so that you can see everything, but everything is safe. In the case of the Bill of Rights, for instance, it's in a super-duper case, which has its own respiration system. Uh, we have changed the mechanics so that we can control the humidity and temperature. We do all that for our, all of our exhibits, and we have a current exhibit on uh, we've got one on Virginia Woolf at Lou Reed at the Library for Performing Arts. Um, all you know, all kinds of exhibits going. But Cindy, the truth is, if you have a need to see and even touch the original, this is the only place on the planet where you can come and say, "I work on. I'm I'm totally fascinated." by Dickens, and I've gotten to the point where I need to see the original manuscript of a Charles Dickens novel or story, we will do that for you. You don't need to be a fancy university president, you know, professor. We are the most used research library on the planet because we will do that for anyone. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. If my housekeeper comes up and wants to see the Declaration of Independence, you're going to open it for her? No, you're going to have to see that one in the case. The, uh, <laughs> but, but we're, I mean, look, I, I realize, you know, this is, you know, people need different things from their library. There are folks who need to be learned how to be literate. Uh, folks who just, you know, are using us for online stuff. We've got 
fancy researchers who do need to see the original manuscripts. Our goal is to enable everyone to sort of get their mind around the storehouse of knowledge that we have and move whether they're starting from pre-K or whether they're a Nobel laureate. It's the same thing for us. We're here to help people think. And, you know, God knows we need more of that these days, Cindy. Okay. The truth is, speaking to you, Tony, you're so boring. That's the problem. That's the thing. You never have anything to say. Listen, every 10 years I got to talk to you. I think we got to make it more often. I will. I will come down. I will come down. I will come down. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me, sweetie. Have a great weekend. It's always great to talk to you. New York's lucky to have you. Thank you, lovey. Thanks, sweetie. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am about to speak to Jim Campbell. He's the author of the book that came out a few years ago called Madoff Talks. And one of the interview subjects in Madoff Talks, he interviews all of the players, the family, their associate. It's in over 400 pages. And as we speak now, it's a Netflix documentary. Okay, Jim, are you on the phone? Are you there? Yes, Cindy, thanks for having me. It's a thrill. I read your column whenever it's on. The post has been was great, too, and the book came out. Steve Links, the editor, gave me two full pages at the front. Mackenzie Dawson put me in the Sunday books deal. And WABC's been great, too. I was on um, Rita Cosby's show. So thanks for having me. Okay, before we go into every single thing I want to know about Madoff, everything, tell us who you are. What is your background? Yeah, um, Jim Campbell. I have syndicated radio shows, Business Talk with Jim Campbell, Forensic Talk with Jim Campbell. It is a crime show. And what happened with the Madoff thing was fortuitous. I was interviewing someone, uh, Lori Sandell, who'd written a book that Andrew had cooperated with a bit. Ruth didn't like it, but he pressed her to cooperate. And before we come on the air, um, uh, she says, do you want to talk to Andrew Madoff on background? I said, wow. Yeah, and sure. Andy talks, Andy talks to me. By then, about that time, he's one of the most vilified people on the planet and obviously hasn't been talking to anybody. He's being sued left and right. We were off the record. I started attacking him from the minute I got on the phone, and he couldn't have been nicer, more honest. And that led to the second coincidence. His mother, Ruth Madoff, happened to be moving to Greenwich, where I live in Connecticut, and we spent a ton of time together uh, having meals, texting, and she introduced me to Bernie in prison, and that's, the rest is history. Okay, how long after the arrest of Bernie Madoff did you start writing uh, this? Yeah, this was about 2011, I believe, that Bernie and I uh, got in touch. And uh, it, between that and the book coming out was uh, over 10 years. Did you have any prior white-collar crime knowledge or experience before? Well, I've, um, you know, my my show is kind of investigative in nature, so I had done a lot of things. I had the biggest insider trading and the Raz Roger Rotten on. I had the first interview with Elliot Spitzer, 
after he uh, resigned uh, from governor. I had Dennis Kozlowski, who was the Tyco CEO. He'd only done 60 minutes uh, before. So I and I've had some done a lot on the Russian um, oligarchs, et cetera. So I have had some. But getting, you know, 400 pages with Bernie himself uh, is really uh, unbelievable. Okay, what inspired? Okay, we know what he is. We know he was a louse. We know all of the rest of it. What inspired you to write this particular book? Well, you know, when you get this much access uh, to Bernie Madoff, which no one else had, I had to do something with it. And he's such an unfathomable mind. I mean, brilliant guy who built a business from scratch that was 100% legitimate, worth $3 billion at peak, and the biggest criminal enterprise on Wall Street at the exact same time over the same years. I mean, just imagine what that brain is like. But did did anybody get angry as a result of all the stuff that you discovered and you were writing about? Um, you mean victims and things getting mad at either vic- Either victims or family members or stuff that you revealed that nobody else had yeah. known before? Yeah. Um, well, first off, let me tell you, um, it, it covers all of the failure of the regulatory side, the SEC and Wall Street. So J.P. Morgan was um, uh, Bernie's bank. So I'm pretty tough on them in the book. And I know Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO, just called me this week uh, after watching the documentary. In terms of um, safety, I'll give you an example. I was given all of Bernie's diaries and all of his phone numbers to all of his investors. And there's one over in um, Austria in particular who ran a feeder fund, which are these hedge funds that sent money to Bernie. And I was told if I called that number, I might get killed. Oh, that's sort of nice. Tell me about the Jamie Dimon thing. I mean, what what did he say? What did he want? Interesting, yes. He, um, he, he had watched the documentary, obviously, because he wanted to get across some points um, in, uh, in defense of J.P. Morgan. And I hope I'm not revealing too much, but I had a lot more information just because of the depth of detail I'd been in. And within a few minutes, he actually started listening to me and asking me questions. <laughs> I cannot say how impressed I was that this is a big CEO, probably the, along with Larry Fink of uh, BlackRock, that, two biggest finance guys rule that he listened. He listened to me. He didn't try and bark or dictate or get mad. The next day I sent him an email apologizing for interrupting him. He said, no, it was a good conversation. Bernie, what, what, Jim, what did he ask you? Actually, what did he want to know that he didn't know? He, oh, what do you, he asked me about another bank that he'd heard rumors fraudulently treated um, the Madoff investors and the way they acted. And I took them through the whole story without telling you the bank. I will tell you, this is pretty sordid stuff. Madoff never allowed any independent custodians. Normally you keep the money separate from the money managers. So you know, it's really there. This big international bank was perceived to be the custodian of a feeder fund out of Austria. And so people thought that's where the money was. Well, under the table, this bank, had delegated custodianship to a small bank they owned in the Cayman Islands, which in turn, under the table, delegated custodianship right back to Bernie Madoff. Oi, this is very, this is very interesting. Did you speak to his wife? Ruth Madoff? Oh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with her. I was really closest uh, to her. I mean, Bernie and I, had our relationship was question and answer back and forth. He grew to like me. He himself is a likable 
guy other than being a narcissistic liar. But Ruth um, gave me a lot of time. And, you know, she would pour out her heart because she lost both her sons. She started dating Bernie at 13. He gets a 150-year jail sentence. Everybody thinks she's evil and, and involved. Her, her sons were alienated from the beginning because she couldn't, she couldn't disconnect herself from uh, Bernie. And here she is. She gave up $800 million bucks. They left her with $2.5 million, and she did not complain about it to me. She just said, I came from Queens from nothing, and I don't need a lot of money, and I'm going to just go on. Okay, so you believe that she was innocent, completely I, innocent? I, I did my own. you got to remember that the DOJ, the Southern District of New York, the FBI, the bankruptcy trustee, and, and the media and people all believe that Ruth, Mark, and Andrew were um, yeah, complicit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, yeah. I, I did my own investigation in Chapter 8 of the book, and um, I come up with that the, none of the three of them knew about it or were complicit, um, which I had told CBS Sunday morning when they interviewed me. Um, does that mean they shouldn't have known? Well, should the SEC have missed five separate investigations and the feeder funds who were putting in money and supposed to be doing due diligence? So they did not know, um, and, they, and they were not involved, but obviously everybody has a moral uh, fault for not getting Listen, when I was married, I knew what my husband was doing and who he was doing it to. You can Uh, tell me that this lady never knew borscht? Is that what you're telling me? Let me tell you something. I asked her, what's the first thing you said to Bernie when he he broke down that night before December 11th in the Upper East Side apartments you had? She said her first question was, what's a Ponzi scheme? Now, she had an inkling something big was up about a day before because Madoff told her to withdraw 10 million bucks and she came into the office and was catatonic, but she did not know that it was a Ponzi scheme. And by the way, none of his big investors who were doing illegal stuff, they knew it was illegal, knew it was a Ponzi scheme specifically. The boys were completely devastated. And Mark, as you know, committed suicide two days, two years to the day of the arrest. So listen, I'm, I can't understand what motivated Bernie to do yeah, what he did, actually. That's a great, great question, particularly when he knew he had a legitimate business and didn't even need to do it. And it was not greed, and it was not because he lost some money and he was acting like a gambler and trying to double down, um, you know, for a small time with a Ponzi scheme and then get out of it, which, by the way, is the lie he told me. But the fact is he could not psychically accept losses. And his legitimate business was based on commissions. So you're making money when the market's up, when the money's up, when the market's down. He, he started off with about 20 investors, and he saw he could lose money. He couldn't deal with it. He couldn't accept it. So he stopped trading for real and faked it. He had to be the go-to guy. He had to be the guy that delivered. He could never say that he couldn't do something. And that's why he just kept on doing it. He couldn't get himself out of it. It's also why his family didn't know. He would have never, his ego would never have allowed him to say, I had to turn to criminal behavior to save the firm. It isn't possible that you may be somewhat on the, on the side of Madoff and we are not. Is that possible? No. Um, first off, my whole approach was to follow the truth. 
I was very lucky that that Bernie and the family, they trusted me with their legacy, even though none of them knew me from dirt. But I don't care what I find. I just focus on the truth. I would have turned Ruth, Andrew, and Mark in. And by the way, my investigation on Mark and Andy, it was very close to the end, um, whether I could figure out whether they were guilty or not, because certain things didn't look good. So I called it as I see it, the same way that I like Jamie Dimon, but I had to call out what J.P. Morgan did. They missed, they missed an incredible amount. Bertie's that little checking account that he ran his customers through, ran $170 billion through it. And in his strategy, which is a stock market-based strategy, there should have been payments to counterparties for trades, and there should have been dividends for, uh, for stocks that they, that they earned. Very, you know, basic stuff. In all the 40 years, there was never a single dollar of a payment to a counterparty and, and not a single dollar deposit of a dividend. There should have been $4 billion. So J.P. Morgan really should have been able to figure this thing out within five minutes of looking inside that account. Anybody not talk to you? Yes. Here's the surprising thing. Just, you just heard me say how poorly J.P. Morgan did. J- Jamie Dimon allowed his people to talk on background to me, okay, with nothing to gain. The big winner, supposedly, is the Pacific Bankruptcy tr- Trustee. He is appointed to try to go in back and get money back for victims. They got $14 billion back out of the 19 that was the base investment, which is considered incredible. Except, how did they do that? They didn't really have any money in their customer fund like the FDIC does for banks. They went to Madoff investors who had taken out more than they put in and, and clawed back money that they may not even have had anymore and they were innocent, and given it to Madoff victims who had left their money there. So I found that pretty sleazy, to be blunt. But in any event, you would think he would love to talk because he's telling this incredible story. And by the way, for doing that, he took $2 billion in in fees, which is a rather (laughs) massive number. He refused to talk to me three times, and he refused to talk to Netflix. Did, Did Madoff ever think he would be caught? He was stunned that he wasn't caught. Um, Let me give you one example he told me. It's a Friday night, and he's talking to the SEC who are examining him. And he says, you know, I can prove to you that all my trades exist. There's something called the DTC, Depository Trust Company. It's where all the clearing is done on Wall Street, and every trade has to go through there before it settles. And his legitimate business, you could trace every single trade through there. So he says, here's my account number, 646. You call the DTC and you ask for the sub-account on the investment advisory business, which is the Ponzi scheme, and you'll see every trade is there. He says, Jim, I'm expecting to be arrested over the weekend. There's no sub-account, and there was never a single trade that went through the DTC for that business, and the SEC never made the phone call. So meantime, Jim, are you rich? (laughs) From Netflix, you mean, or from Bernie? (laughs) I didn't get any Bernie. No, I'm just joking on Bernie. Netflix optioned my book, right? And then I consulted with them. I can't tell tell you enough. The director, Joe Berlinger, who's done stuff on Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Ted Bundy, um, Whitey Bulger. What a great human being and great director he is. He's number one true crime director for Netflix. He treated me so well. He took my book seriously. It's a very complex story. 
And he told all the facts. He didn't try to Hollywoodize it. Okay, 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 okay. I know all about how great you are and how great your Netflix is and how great your book is and how great everything is. And I'm glad that you spoke to me. You're a wonderful, wonderful writer. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, I love you. You're very nice, Cindy. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, honey. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, we have done some heavy subjects today. We've done Madoff, we've done the library, and we have done Martin Luther King. So maybe for the end, I think maybe I'd like to tell you, there is a small book of Jewish comedians, and it has people like everybody saying something smart-ass. For instance, Alan King said, You do live longer with Bran but you spend the last 15 years on the toilet. And then there's Bill Maher, who has said to me, I was raised half Jewish and half Catholic. When I'd go to confession, I'd say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And you know my attorney, Mr. Cohen. Wait, we go on to Freddie Roman. Freddie Roman said, An elderly couple goes on their honeymoon. She went to bed first and yells downstairs to her new husband, Would you like to come upstairs and make love? And he calls back, Listen, I can't do both. Okay, Gary Shandling. He says in this book, I told my girlfriend that unless she expressed her feelings and told me what she liked, I wouldn't be able to please her. So she said, Get off me. <laughs> Gary Shandling said, I am very loyal when it comes to relationships. Even when I go out with my mom, I do not look at another mother. Well, that's not as bad as the other one. And wait, Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld said, men want the same thing from their underwear that they want from women. A little bit of support and a little bit of freedom. And then there was Larry David. Larry David, he's so funny. He said, I had a wonderful childhood, which is tough because it's hard to adjust to a miserable adulthood. This is all in this book, the small book of Jewish comedians. And it was Mel Brooks who said, if presidents can't do it to their wives, they do it to their country. <laughs> Rita Rudner. My grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands, and two of them were just napping. Okay, wait. How much time have I got? I want to do a few more. Oh, I'm very good. So then Roseanne Barr. She said, I am not upset about my divorce. I am only upset that I am not a widow. Sarah Silverman, Sarah Silverman. I don't care if you think I'm racist. I just want you to think that I'm thin. Sasha Baron Cohen. Sex can lead to nasty things like herpes, rashes, and something called relationships. You have to watch out for the relationships. And then there's Woody Allen. Woody Allen has said, 
there are worse things in life than death. Have you ever spent an evening with an insurance salesman? Okay, I want to tell you those things. And the book is My Life with Jewish Comedians. And I think I have done them. And that's about, oh, Bette Midler. I didn't do Bette Midler. Bette Midler says, I married a German. Every night I dress up as Poland and he invades me. <laughs> okay, the book is a small book of Jewish comedians. Now that the Campaign Legal Center, Washington's watchdog, filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission, they are sniffing into George Satan Santos about lying. He is the one who ran for Congress in Long Island and then admitted he had lied about every single thing he said. He has lied about fundraising, about loans, about expenditures, about his entire scramble to Congress. This man's income leaped from $55,000 in 2020 to $750,000 in 2022. His campaign pocketed $705,000 in loans, since Russian oligarchs have laundered money via political campaigns, why, oh why, oh why, would anyone distrust Mr. Santos? His run for office was against respected public relations executive Robert Zimmerman. Maybe Santos someday will grab a payday for a memoir down the line. Maybe it will be written from Brazil. And maybe Mr. Zimmerman could do the actual PR. Anyway, what I want to do is I want to thank you all for listening. I want to tell you, not that you asked me, but how much I enjoy doing my radio broadcast every Sunday from 1 to 2 on WABC. I love doing it. It started as a small little radio station, and now it is the number one in its territory. It's got the biggest names. It's got John Katsimatidis as its president, as its owner, and I am very grateful to be here to do my broadcast every single Sunday. So you better listen to me next Sunday also, because I love you and thank you for listening so far. Bye.